uh, I'm just going to dive in. So if you have your Bibles and you want to track with me, uh, Revelation chapter 17, uh, 18 and 19 is where we're going to be hanging out. I'll just do a little recap uh, on some stuff and then we will jump into it. Um, Angels blowing trumpets, monsters rising from the deep, lakes of fire and rivers of blood. Ah, yes, the book of Revelation. There's nothing like it elsewhere in the New Testament. It's the only book to feature dragons, giant bugs, and airborne horses. Revelation is a book to excite the senses. The Bible does not often tell us what color things are, but here everything is red, purple, yellow, blue, green, gold. It's also a noisy book rumbling with the din of battle that never actually happens. It's over before it starts. The crash of thunder, earth echoes with the wailing of the damned, heaven rings with songs and shouts of the saved, and those trumpets... There's hardly a moment's peace. No, wait, there's a thousand years of peace, but that's just three verses. And then all hell breaks loose, literally. The imagery is fantasy, something Dr. Seuss might have thought up after a sleepless night reading Stephen King. (laughs) The locusts wear armor like horses. The horses have serpents for tails. And what's this thing that's part leopard, part bear, part lion, but lives in the sea? In a sense, to interpret the book is to misinterpret it, for the appeal is to the imagination. It's a book to be experienced, not really explained. Could the impact of its visual imagery ever be captured in literal illustrations? Imagine the questions that would arrive at some film studio like Pixar or Weta Studios trying to bring this thing to the big screen. Why do the beasts have ten horns but only seven heads? And how exactly does a lion look like a slain lamb? Just as jokes are seldom funny when they have to be explained, so revelation may lose some of its power when it has to be interpreted. Herein lies my challenge this morning. Uh, So we've got two chapters, and they're not the easiest chapters. Thanks, Sam. Uh, But we're going to dig into it. My friend Dan Sheed, which some of you, who some of you might know, uh, he has this wonderful line where he talks about his sermons and he says this, I hope it's encouraging uh, to the part of us that's timid, challenging to the part of us that's apathetic, and caring to the part of us that's broken and hurting. So that's my prayer for this message. So let me give you a recap of the story so far. We kind of ended uh, last week with Sam talking about John weeping because no one can be found to break the seals of the scroll, which is full of God's justice and righteous judgments. And he's told that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, but only the, lion, the only lion that John sees is God's slain lamb who has redeemed people from all nations. Such a conqueror can set the drama in motion by breaking the seals, Revelation 6, which offer a kind of overture uh, of for what uh, follows next in the few chapters, chapters of conquest, war, famine, death. Those are the first four seals. Followed by martyrdom, seal 5, to which God responds with judgment, seal 6. It's especially important to note that apart from his role in the final battle, the only way Christ appears Uh, From here on in the narrative is the slain lamb, something Sam uh, 
emphasized quite well. And this is how his followers are expected to triumph as well. Then we kind of have interruptions in the book of Revelation. There's two interlude visions. Chapter 7, of those whom God has sealed from his coming judgments. Those who are protected, but pictured in a battle formation for their role in the holy war, which, as I said, no one ever participates in, in a literal battle. Um, then this is followed by the seventh seal, which unfolds as the vision of the seven trumpets. These judgments echo the plagues of Egypt, and like those plagues, announce the temporal and partial judgments against the present-day Pharaoh, uh, or the Caesars. Uh, but as with the Egyptian Pharaoh, the plagues do not lead to repentance, something John was kind of hoping for. The interlude visions begin the sixth and seventh trumpets, and the call to the church to prophesy and bear witness even in the face of death, while also pronouncing the certain doom of empire. What a thing to be able to say. It's going to end. It's going to end. And ending with a foretaste of the final glorious reign of God and the Lamb. So the kind of remaining visions as the story continues uh, is uh, offered in 12 to 22. And this op offers an explanation and an apocalyptic description uh, the thing you have to remember about apocalyptic literature, this is, the Greek word apocalypse means to unveil that which is already there. It's there, you just can't see it. So right now, I've got a t-shirt on. You don't know what's on my t-shirt. You don't know what's insignias there. You don't know what patterns are there. And all of a sudden, if I was to lift it up, don't look, um, <laughs> you'd see what was there, and that would be apocalyptic because it's unveiling that which is already there. It's not necessarily unveiling the future. It's unveiling what's happening in the here and now amongst us. And so these descriptions of final doom of empire, and then we have chapter 12 to 14, give us theological and historical reasons for both the suffering and the judgment. The doom of Rome itself is portrayed in the vision of the seven bowls, 15, 16, which echo the trumpet plagues, but now with opportunity to repent. The whole thing then concludes with a tale of two cities, which is where we're going to hang out today. Well, we're going to hang out with one of the cities. I'll leave the second city, the good part, to Sam or somebody else. Thanks, guys. Uh, and this is represented by two women, the prostitute or the whore of uh, Rome and the bride of the Lamb, in which the city represents enmity against God and his people is judged. 17 and 18, that's where we're going to be today. This is set against the backdrop of God's final salvation and judgment in 19 and 20. And the final glory of the bride is the city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. So I get the difficult judgment passages and they get all the good stuff of salvation and glory. Thanks, guys. Love your work. So uh, I want to read Revelation 17, 18. Here's a little, um, I've titled this, The Bad News That Is Good News If You Listen. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a succinct title. I, I, I like that one. I actually agree with that one. Uh, so here's the structure of the passage. If you just go there, there's the structure. Now I'm just going to read Revelation 17 and 18 up to 19, 10 to you. I haven't given you the text of there because I just want you to listen to this, uh, these two chapters. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can, but I'd rather you just sit there and just listen to the, the, the chapters. 
Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon, the great mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was dumbstruck. But the angel said to me, don't feel like that. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And in the inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be amazed when they see the beast because it, is, because it was and is not and is to come. Now that's a famous funeral saying, just means it's dead. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the, se- the woman is seated. Also they are seven kings on whom five have fallen, one is living and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are united in yielding their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb. But the lamb will conquer. For he is the Lord of lords, King of kings, and those with him are called chosen, faithful. And he said to me, the waters that you saw where the whore is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore and they will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put this in their hearts. And they will give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman that you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor. 
he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine and the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. Then I heard another voice. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, please, my people, so that you do not partake of her sins and do not share in her destruction. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Rendered to her as she herself has rendered and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double draft for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so give her a like measure of torment and grief. Since in her heart she says, I rule as queen. I am no widow. I will never see grief. Therefore her plagues will come. In a single day, pestilence, mourning, famine, and she will be burned with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who pronounces judgment. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in her torment and say, alas, Alas, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, people, human lives. The fruit for which your soul longed is gone from you and all your dainties and splendor are now lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls. In one hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafarers, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned and crying out, Alas, alas, the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid Waste, rejoice over her. For God has given for her, for you against her, judgment against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, 
saying, with such violence, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down and will be found no more. The sound of harpists and minstrels and of flutists and trumpets will be heard no more. And an artisan of any trade will be found in you no more. And the sound of the millstone will be heard in you no more. And the light of lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were magnets of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in you was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slaughtered on earth. And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power to our God for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore. He is corrupted, who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has brought justice for her blood of his servants. Once more they said, Hallelujah. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. And all you who feel him, fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, for his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, no, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrade who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. Amen. Woo! All of that in three hours. I mean, no, no, not three hours. So that's where we're going. So the first thing to note is Rome is Babylon. Uh, there are many descriptions in these chapters that tell us this is Babylon, uh, that this is Rome, sorry. Uh, and the first thing is, this is Babylon, the great city. And that is a common epithet for Rome in the first century. The reason I make a big deal about associating this with Rome is because if you don't get that right, then John's critique can be misplaced. And so John here is looking at Rome the vast empire, the empire that controls everything, the most powerful nation in the ancient world, and he's going, Babylon. Do you know what Babylon looks like in the first century? It's nothing. It's a bunch of rubble and stones. And here's John with this audacious vision against the most powerful, powerful entity known in the Roman world. And he goes, you're like Babylon. And the Romans would have gone, what's Babylon? I'm not even sure they would have remembered Babylon, an ordinary Roman. 
You'd have to know scripture to kind of remember who Babylon was. And yet here John is saying, this is Babylon. You know, the seven heads are seven hills. And these are classic descriptions of Rome. And here John takes this Old Testament image of this great empire that was so mighty and formidable and unstoppable. And which is nothing anymore. It's like you guys, you don't fear the Roman Empire. None of you are worried particularly about Rome's power and influence. None of you are kind of, you might even be aware that, okay, it's kind of somewhere in Italy and, you know, there are parts there. And there are some cool, if you've been to some of the places, you can go to some of the ruins and you can see little rocks that are left over from this mighty empire. You see, Rome had this ideology. They believed that the gods had chosen Rome. That uh, Roma was this, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, its emperor and its agents were there by God's will. And that they were the, the, the saviors. The emperor is often called the savior. You know, if you've ever watched uh, either 300 or Gladiator or any of those kind of movies, and you know, especially in Gladiator, there you've got Maximus Ceridius, and he's there, and what's he going to do? Well, he's got the Roman armies, and these idiot Germanians have, have dared to stand up to Rome. And what's Rome going to do? She's going to do what she always does, flatten them all, destroy them all. Why? Because she believes she manifests the God's blessing and security. And this phrase, Pax Romana, such a beautiful phrase, the peace of Rome. You've got to remember, there's an army that stands behind that. It's, would you like to have peace with me? If you say yes, you can live. If you say no, we come in and destroy you, your family, your crops, and everything about you. Would you like to have peace? It's like the messenger in 300, you know, the Persian messenger. He arrives with a, with a set of skulls, and it's like, I'm just showing you what's going to happen if you don't agree to my terms. And King Leonidas, what? This is Sparta. Get out of here. And then what happens? They go to war. And Xerxes arrives with his armies. This is classic Roman tactics. And Rome maintained and sustained their way of life through violence. To plunder, butcher, steal these things, they misname empire. They make a desolation and they call it peace. That's Tacitus writing in the late first century. A Roman historian is this, this is what we do. We go in and we take over. And John has the audacity to say, it's going to end. Your imperial arrogance will be your downfall. She claims I am enthroned a queen. I'm not a widow and sorrow I've never seen. Well, John's like, well, you're going to see sorrow. You're not going to last. Revelation 18 is a funeral song. I mean, can you imagine John on the island of Patmos, probably exiled there because of his faith, and he's singing this great song, Rome. This is a song that I'll sing at your funeral. I mean, the audacity is ludicrous. 
Where's Rome today? Still around? Oh, we can find stones and rocks of it. The imperial arrogance came to naught. And, you know, John picks up on language from uh, Isaiah, repay her according to her deeds, for she arrogantly defied Yahweh. And Yahweh says, I am against you, O arrogant one. Rome thought she was everything. She even adopted in the ancient Near East, there's the great mother goddess. And Rome was like, oh, I like that idea. So you now sacrifice to Roma, the great mother, the one who gives everybody life, if you agree to our terms, of course. And what does John say? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. No longer. Like all those other ancient empires that stood in conflict with God and God's people, Rome too is revealed as fallen. So why did she fall? Well, John uses pretty strong language, pretty confronting language. He calls her the great whore. He calls her the mother of whores. You've got to understand that this is metaphorical language for the ultimate act of infidelity. You who have betrayed your commitments, you who uh, have led people into idolatry, you who think you're so great. This image of a whore is the quintessential image of infidelity and disordered relationships. And John says, you're the epitome of infidelity. You're also an abuser. Uh, Babylon is this economic exploiter. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and having been gilded with gold and precious stones and pearls, having had in her the golden cup and all these images of these very expensive items like scented wood and articles of ivory. And this is ostentatious. This is opulence at its max. And, and this is only for the elect few who abuse the rest of people, who take advantage of them. I mean, Revelation 18, 13 ends with this, all these products that they have, and it climaxes with slaves and human lives. This is human trafficking and sex trafficking on a national, international level. And John's saying, this is an exploitive power. This is a power that destroys lives that robs people. This is, Babylon is a murderer. I mean, Revelation 17, 4, the woman was holding a cup filled with the abominations and the unclean things of her whoring. And then in verse 6, he says, she was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. This is likely a reference to Nero. Oh, there's a fire going on in Rome. I need someone to blame. Who am I going to blame? Blame the Christians. 
I mean, Tacitus, the Roman historian, says this. He says, therefore, first they were seized, those who admitted that they were, they were uh, their Christian allegiance, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for hatred of the human race. Now, you've got to understand the logic here. Uh, for the Romans, if you don't worship the gods, the gods will be cranky and upset and they will unleash hellfire on earth. Famine, pestilence, war, bad business, all those sorts of things. And so the Christians refused to worship the gods. They said, we'll pray for you guys, we'll love you guys, but we won't worship you. And so the Romans go, no, you have to worship the gods or the gods will turn on us. So why do you hate us? That's the logic in the Roman mind. And so uh, Tacitus carries on. He says, and perishing, they were additionally made into sports and they were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed, they were used as nighttime lamps. This is a Roman historian. He goes on to say, I kind of feel pity for them because they hadn't done anything wrong, other than being haters of humanity, but they didn't even deserve this. But Rome is so infatuated with violence. We've already counted this earlier in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 2.13, Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you. She's a murderer. I mean, there's an interesting analogy between Jezebel and Babylon. I'll put it up there. There's all these connections, but the point here is that Babylon the Great, which is raising its head within the church itself through the figure of a purported Christian teacher who's really a false teacher, and the content of her false teachings within the church of Thyatira was probably an expression of Babylonians' worldly ideas communicated with a veneer of Christian-sounding language. And it's like Babylon has infiltrated the church with these ideas that we can abuse people, that we can take advantage of people, that it's all about me and myself and my hopes and my dreams and it's all about me. And this heightened individualism that ravishes people's lives, that takes them apart and is vicious. I mean, listen to the way Revelation 21.8 describes him. The cowards, the faithless, those having practiced abomination and murderers who practice whoring and sorcery and idol worshippers and all those who propagate illusions or deceptions. Babylon has this vicious way of life. So what's God supposed to do? Just sit back and go, okay, cool. No. Revelation 17, 1. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore. This picks up on the earlier visions of judgment. Fear God and give him glory for the hour of judgment has come. It's here. He's not depicting some future thing. He's like, this has already started and it's going to carry on into the future and then one day there will be a final reckoning and then it's over. But he remembers judgment is here. 
Now, the temptation for some of us is to be embarrassed by this notion of judgment. Like, come on, guys, we, we like the God of love. We like the God of joy. We, we like the nice, happy God. Like, we've had enough hell and brimstone, really. It's, it's, it's been done. It's not that cool. Let's just skip that. And yes, you're right. It's been overdone, overplayed, overemphasized. God is a God of love. But I like this quote by N.T. Wright, where he says this, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular anything that does this to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out of his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. Now, yes, it's been overdone. It's been badly framed. Too often this God is somehow angry and judgmental. He's not. But he is determined to eradicate evil. And if he wasn't, it would mean he didn't really care. I mean, for those of us who are parents, think about this. I have a two-year-old and an eight-year-old. My two-year-old's name is Mia. She's delightful. Imagine I'm just walking around and let's pick on Sam. And Sam comes and he says, oh, hey, bro. And he just kicks Mia in the face. Should I be angry? He didn't do it to me. Why must I be angry? Because this is someone whom I deeply this is someone who I cherish. This is someone whom I delight in. And you've just harmed her. I wouldn't be a good loving father if I didn't get upset. That's exactly how God feels about every single human being that is alive. You're never gonna find the one human being that God goes, nah, don't like that one. Nah, nah, not that one. No, Sean, you find it? No, that one. No. You will never look into the eyes of another human being whom God does not love. You will never find that one. And so we shouldn't be embarrassed about God's judgment. We should be stoked. God, you care enough to eradicate evil. You are committed to it. In Revelation 19, 1 to 3, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God for His judgments are true and He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication. They're celebrating. Now notice, there's no glee here. There's no smugness. This is not what the Germans call schadenfreude which is like a glee at the misfortune of another. 
And I think sometimes Christians need to be careful a bit here. Don't rejoice in judgment. Oh, you're going to get it. No, God weeps when he unleashes judgment. It's not what he wants. He will meet it out, but that's not what he wants. Justice is not vengeance. God's not a vengeful God. And I often notice, I get a little nervous when some Christians start talking about justice and vengeance. And I'm like, you always want justice for your others, but you want mercy for yourself. And I'm like, just be careful here. We must rejoice in God's judgments because they are faithful and true. Not because we want some kind of a vengeance against people. These Christians have been facing harassment. These Christians have been facing social ostracization. These Christians have been abused. And so when God finally acts on their behalf to liberate them and free them, they can only say, thank you so much. When I worked for Tear Fund, I was the theologian at Tear Fund, and I used to listen to the testimonies of women who'd been freed from all sex trafficking and stuff. And the people were finally brought to justice. And there's this moment where they're just so grateful to God for sending someone to help. That's what's going on in Revelation 19. It's not God's an angry God. It's this just anger. And we find Revelation repeating this time and time again. In Revelation 19, 1 and 2, for his judgments are true and just. He brought justice for the blood of his servants. 15, 3, just and true are your ways, king of the nations. 16, 7, oh yes, O oh Lord, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. Revelation portrays God as not as some vindictive tyrant, but as this loving father who cares about what is right. But it's interesting to actually take a look and say, what do these judgments look like? And we're given a a kind of a glimpse of this in Revelation 17, particularly in verse 16, and says, and the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now, this is a startling and confronting piece of scripture here. But essentially what John is saying is, revelation, evil turns on itself. This whore that's so powerful and so mighty, the beast will turn on her and she too will become a victim. So not only is she the abuser, the perpetrator of injustice and exploitation and murder, but this will happen to her. And it's kind of like God set up the world that you reap what you sow. And so this imperial arrogance, this way of life has within itself the seeds of its own destruction. Now in the early church, they developed this beautiful Latin phrase, incurvitus in se. And the best way to explain it is to think about a toenail. It's a beautiful image. Work with me here. 
Now you imagine a, a toenail growing inwards and further and further and further inwards. And what is it doing? It's destroying its host. It's destroying itself. And this is the image that early Christians, and particularly Augustine in the fourth century, used for sin. It destroys us. And so John is like, hey, it's not God whipping out thunderbolts against people here. No, actually, if you read a little further in uh, Revelation 19, uh, 11 and onwards, it's, you know, these Jesus and he's, drip, he's already got a robe dipped in blood. And I'm like, the battle hasn't even started yet. And, but your blood, he's already dipped in blood and that's his crucifixion, his cross is where he won his victory. And now it's just the sword of the spirit, which is his word, which offers judgment. There's no actual battle in Revelation. I love it. You know, I was like reading through, I'm like, where's the actual battle? Where does it take place? No, it's over before it starts. Jesus dies on the cross. He's slaughtered by the power that he's trying to save. And then he just rocks up. Hey, you killed me, but I'm back. Because I have the power of death. You don't have the power of me. And then he pronounces judgment and it's over. There's no war. And what is his judgment? You reap what you sow. You did this to yourself. And it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. It's amazing to follow the logic of the book of Revelation and its emphasis on the theme of repentance. Revelation 2.5. Remember then from what you have fallen. Same language that's used for Babylon. Repent. I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. 2.16. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 2.21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Revelation 3.3, remember then what you've received and heard, obey it and repent. Revelation 3.19, I correct and train those whom I love, be earnest therefore and repent. All the way through the letter, he's giving you an opportunity. This is a vision of future judgment. Why is he telling you this is future judgment? He's like, you don't have to face this. It's the sign at the top of the hill that says, watch out, there's a cliff. That's what John's shouting. Judgment is coming. You don't have to face it. You can avoid it. If you would repent. Now, let's move into some of the significance for us today. There's a temptation here to think about Rome as this big thing that's out there. When actually it's all about how we live right here and now. And John says in Revelation 18.4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, 
Come out of her, my people, so that you do not partake in her sins, so that you do not share in her plagues. It seems like some of the Christians have become a bit cozy with empire. And by that, John means you've come a bit cozy with exploitation. You've come a bit cozy with taking advantage of people, with the ways of the world. You've been seduced by a vision that will lead to your own destruction. And John's like, come out for your own benefit. Come out for your own safety. Come out for your own flourishing. Because this thing that you're giving yourself to, it promises way more than it delivers. And what it delivers is bad. You've been sold a lie. Now he's not talking about, okay, cool, let's, let's just re- retreat from the world, guys, and we'll create our little ghetto over here, our little holy huddle, and, and, and we'll just be safe here. No, he's not talking about that. Holiness doesn't mean distance. It means distinctiveness. You ever watch Jesus, the quintessential example of what it means to be holy? He's hanging out with all the wrong people. Holiness is not about distance from people. But yet, that's what the Pharisees thought. They thought, oh, let's pick on Sam. They thought, oh, this man is unholy. So what we need to do is we need to create distance. Because that stuff is contagious. And I don't want that in my life. So we create distance. And we want more distance. The more distance, the better. Because then I can't catch what he's got. I can't be infected by that stuff. Whereas Jesus is like, no, wait, man. Let's get up close and personal yeah. Jesus is like, how you doing? It gets a little bit awkward with how close Jesus gets. Really awkward. This is what Sam's feeling now. He's like, I don't know what to do with this, bro. <laughs> now, of course, there's wisdom here. There's wisdom that says if you put yourself in a situation where you're going to fall, don't be dumb. Go away, grow up, come back. Before I became a Christian, I was a um, professional billiards player. I used to play pool. I was damn good. I was really good. I won competitions and everything. But I realized that my character around a pool table So I had to remove myself from that. I had to come out, grow up, not be an idiot. And then I could come back. Oh, okay, now I'm not such a dumbass anymore. Okay, go away. Let's work on the character. Let's work on my decisions. In what areas are you, you entangled with a way of life that's opposed to God? Where is there just a little bit too much complicity? Is it where you spend your money? Do you think about supply chains? Do you think about where that stuff comes from? Because if you don't, you could be participating in exploitation. And John will have none of that. 
come out. I love Craig Kester. He says, when the heavenly voice cries, come out of her, my people, it speaks especially to readers who are being lulled into complacency by their prosperity. Ouch. Or who find compromising the integrity of their faith to be a reasonable price to pay for the favors offered by the harlot. It's quite an economic concern there. We live in this culture, you know, aptly summarized by Freddie Mercury. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. We need to think about this. We need to think about how entangled we are in this mess. Because look, we grew up in it. And some of us have got blind spots. And a blind spot is okay until it's been revealed to you. <laughs> now that it's been revealed to you, now you don't have an excuse. Sorry. <laughs> now you've got to think about this stuff. You've got to think about what's life-giving or what's part of Babylon that will just be destroyed. And I think there almost needs to be a kind of a righteous anger that needs to well up in the church. Because if we don't get mad at some of the stuff, do we really care? I think we have to follow the example of Jesus. When Jesus watches people getting used and abused, he gets angry. It's appropriate. When he watches lives being torn about, he gets angry. It's important for us to, to actually give a damn about people and react. Now, Scripture exhausts us, get angry but don't sin. Man, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's the one I'm, I'm like, angry, I can do anger but you want me to embody it and constrain it in helpful and beneficial ways? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, that's the tough one, Lord. I, I mean, I could, you know, uh, the Romans talked about anger as unrestrained madness. I, I identify with that. I'm like, unrestrained madness. Yeah, let's just get angry and go berserk. And God's like, no, 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 no. We get angry. And we put that towards productive outlets, beneficial outlets. We make decisions. We reorganize our priorities. We embody our values. And we demonstrate. Because otherwise, this is just an intellectual exercise where we talk about stuff. And talk is cheap. Supply exceeds demand. I talk for a living. It's easy. It's very easy to talk about this stuff. But to make decisions about what I care about, to make decisions, maybe little ones, that will have a decent impact on people around the world. 
we need to get a little bit more angry and unleash that in helpful and beneficial ways. John calls us in Revelation 19, 9-10. He says, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet and I worshipped and then he was like, Stop that! You egg! It's my translation. Don't do that! I'm a fellow servant with you and your comrade who holds the testament of Jesus. Worship God! See, when Revelation calls you to worship, he calls you to a comprehensive, relentless, expansive devotion to Jesus that affects every second of every day. Not just Sundays. I mean, let me show you what worship looks like in the Roman world. Uh, this is the oath of Paphlagonia. Uh, this is, uh, we found this in inscriptions all around Rome. Uh, and it says this, this is the oath taken by the inhabitants of Paphlagonia and the Romans who do business among them. But we found this like in heaps of different places. I swear by Zeus, Earth, Sun, all the gods and goddesses and Augustus himself, that I will be favorably disposed to Caesar Augustus and his children and descendants all the time of my life in word and deed and thought. Whatever I may see or hear being said or plotted or done against them, I will report it and I will be the enemy of the person who says or plots or does these things. If I do anything contrary to this oath, I pray that there may come upon me, my body and soul and life, destruction, total destruction, until the end of all my line and all my descendants." In these same words, this oath was sworn by all the inhabitants of the land and the temples of Augustus throughout the local districts of Paphlagonia by the altars of Caesar. That's worship right there. That's a commitment that involves every aspect of our lives. This theme of judgment is not Necessarily for those outside the church. Remember, this is a letter written to the church. Now, why does John want to tell us all about judgment? A, so that we don't get devoured by the beast by hanging out with her, by cozying up to her. He's trying to protect the church. He's trying to say, hey guys, you cozy up to her and the beast is going to devour you as well. That's why, I mean, the merchants, they're all mourning everything. Babylon's destroyed. We can't get rich of these people anymore. We can't exploit them anymore. And John's giving this vision of judgment to say, church, you got to make decisions unless you be destroyed by Babylon. The next thing, church, you've actually got a witness and a mission because there are people entangled in Babylon and it's destroying them. Let me give you one example. When it talks about those slaves and human lives, that human trafficking, I'm so proud of the early church. You know what they used to do? They used to find out which of among them were slaves and, and if they were in a, in a bad situation, then they'd take up a little offering and they'd go to the master and they'd say, hey, 
we'll give you double what you paid for that slave. And they would buy that person out of slavery. Now, most of the early Christians are poor. Okay? That means in Shepherd of Hermas, it tells us they would fast a couple of days so that they could afford to do that. They were willing to deny themselves the basic needs so that they could rescue those in slavery. I love that. It's like, oh, that's my people. It's not just talk, they're actually doing something. They weren't cozying up to empire. What will that look like for you? Now there's a twofold thing here. There might be some of the things and you're sitting there thinking, oh, that's an error. Maybe I need to partake of this repentance thing. Remember, repentance is a change of heart that leads to a changed life. It's not just the first part. Repentance is not feeling bad. It's change that is embodied in acts of repentance. It's easy to feel bad. It's harder to change. Come Holy Spirit. So John's warning the church, come out, don't cozy up to empire. Repent where you need to repent. And realize that there are those stuck in Babylon and they can be saved. They don't have to face this judgment. They can be rescued because they've been sold lies about all the things that Rome promises to bless you and save you and happiness and joy. and It's all, in the words of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless. Pardon my French, but the contemporary language, I wonder if Solomon might just say, it's just BS. It's a lie that will never deliver on the flourishing that God wants you to have, the meaningful relationships that God wants us to participate in, the joy of knowing there's a God who gives a day. So what will you do? What part will you play? Just close your eyes where you're at. Gracious God, This could sound like bad news, but I hope it sounds like good news. Gracious God, help us. May we repent where we need to repent. May we reflect on our lives in detail. May you bring to mind things that we could do we could liberate ourselves from deception, liberate ourselves from Babylon and her death. Gracious God, please, by your kindness and your gentleness, help us to help those who are trapped in a system and culture 
that ultimately leads to death. Gracious God, allow us to be your faithful witnesses. Allow us to be transformed by your word that we might, as John would say, bring healing to the nations.